Please take your Bibles and turn with me once again to the book of Genesis, to Genesis chapter 3. recent sermons, we have concentrated on verses 1 through 6, verses that speak of the temptation that Satan used to tempt the woman and then the man to eat of the forbidden fruit. And now we read what happens after they ate. Uh, Genesis chapter 3, beginning with verse 7. Then the eyes of both of them were opened. And they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? that question in mind, let us now seek the face of God once again. Holy Father, we thank you and bless you for the poignant account that we have just read, an account that tears us up as we read it, as we see what happened to mankind as a result of sin. And we pray, O Lord, that indeed as we have just sung, that just as you searched out the hearts of Adam and Eve, that you would search our hearts out as well in this hour. We pray, Lord, that you would send the Spirit to search us out, that you would have dealings with us. We pray, Lord, that we would not just hear these things and then go out and then ignore them, but we pray, O Lord, that you would have transforming dealings with us, that you would save sinners in this room, that you would sanctify saints, that you would build up the church, that you would do all of this for the praise and the glory and honor of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Wherever there has been genuine faith, it has included a sense of a present God. From Genesis to Revelation, the Bible depicts men and women of faith as men and women who have experienced genuine accounts, genuine encounters with the very real person that is divine. In his book, The Divine Conquest, A.W. Tozer, he writes this, the men and women of the Bible talked with God. They spoke to him and heard him speak in words that they could understand. With him, they held person-to-person converse, And a sense of shining reality is upon their words and deeds. It was this that filled with abiding wonder the first members of the Church of Christ. The solemn delight which those early disciples knew sprang straight from the conviction that there was one in the midst of them. They knew that the majesty in heavens was confronting them on earth. They were in the very presence of God. And the power of that conviction to arrest attention, to elevate, to transform, to fill with uncontrollable moral happiness, to send men singing to prison and death, has become one 
of the wonders of history and a marvel to the world. Whatever else it embraces, Tozer goes on to say, true Christian experience must always include a genuine encounter with God. And without this, religion is but a shadow, a reflection of reality, a cheap copy of an original once enjoyed by someone else of whom we have heard. Have you had a genuine encounter with God? This is the experience of delight that God's people have. They love to meet with God. They love to be in his presence. But what is this experience of the presence of God like when you've just sinned against God? In the account that immediately precedes the verses that we just read, Eve has allowed herself to enter into a dialogue with the serpent. And first she minimized the goodness of God in giving them to eat of all but the tree of the garden. And then she added a strictness of God's prohibition that was not there. He, she said that you must not touch it, and that's not something that God said. And then finally she softened his word about the certainty of death, if they would sin. And this revisionism, it left her open to the lie of Satan, which contradicted everything that she had experienced of God's goodness. And she then took of the forbidden fruit, ate of it, and then gave it to her husband. And her husband's transgression was even more culpable than hers, in that he had heard the prohibition directly. She had only heard it indirectly from him. And also in the self-serving passivity with which he observed his wife eat and didn't stop her, and then himself with his eyes wide open, undeceived, he then ate. Well, after Adam and Eve sinned, what was their reaction to the approaching presence of God? Now, it's interesting that previously, their times of special communion with God, these were the happiest moments of the day. But now, as we read this passage, we see that the approach of God fills their hearts with fear and with dread, and they hide themselves from God. And likewise, apart from the grace of God, because all of us have sinned against him, apart from his grace, our first reaction to his presence is to hide from him, to run from him. There is none righteous, Paul says. No, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. Now, the way that Adam and Eve reacted to God's presence is a paradigm of the way that all of us attempt to deal with our sin, apart from God's grace. And the way that God dealt with them is the way he deals with us. So these verses are exceedingly relevant to us. The verses that we just read, they alternate between what they did and what God did. And this is reflected in the four main headings of our outlines set out in your bulletins. They cover up. God seeks, they hide, God finds. You see that alternation in the narrative. In the first place, notice with me that they cover up. Let's read again verse 7. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, 
And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. Now the serpent had said that if they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that their eyes would be opened. But what a letdown that proved to be. In our one sense, what Satan said, it proved to be true. Their eyes were indeed opened. But the result of this new awareness was not what they expected. They didn't become divine beings with exciting new knowledge. But rather, they lost their innocence. They lost their freedom from guilt and, and from the bondage of sin. And the transparency and the joy that they formerly had experienced between themselves as a couple. And also their joy in the experience with God that they had. This was gone now. Suddenly, we are told, they knew that they were naked. For the first time, their nakedness made them ashamed. Now this shame, it had a horizontal element to it. What we read here is in sharp contrast with what we read, read earlier of their pre-fall existence in chapter 2 and verse 25. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. Their original nakedness, it symbolized, you see, their complete openness, their complete transparency with one another. And before sin had entered into their relationship, there was absolutely no secrets between Adam and Eve. There were no thoughts, there were no feelings, there were no deeds that they were ashamed to share with one another. Everything was open between them. And this is the most perfect ideal, I think, for a marriage. Complete openness. Now, in our modern context, this would mean that there is nothing that the husband looks at on his computer that he would be unwilling to share with his wife. And on the other hand, there's nothing that the wife says, no bitter thought, no, or, or anything that she says, or any other uh, selfish desire, uh, something that there's nothing like that that she would want to conceal from her husband. And this transparency, this should be the goal of all of our marriages. But suddenly, this is missing from Adam and Eve. Now, for the first time, their physical differences are highlighted, and they feel the need to hide from one another, as it were, to protect themselves from one another, to conceal. Suddenly, they feel the need to cover themselves. Suddenly, there's a breakdown in the perfect oneness that they had previously experienced. Now, for the first time, the man and the woman were alienated from one another. But the worst part of the shame was its vertical element. They had fallen, but they had not just become, you see, fallen from one another. They had not become, you see, just in their relationships with one another fallen, but in their relationship with God. And in their fallenness, they had not yet become so hardened in their sin like sinners will get someday, sometimes later on. And so they immediately felt remorse. Immediately conscience did a work in their hearts. Their eyes were opened. They were ashamed now, not just in each other's presence, but in God's presence. And this promise of knowing good and evil, this was fulfilled, but in the most awful way. Instead of making sinners like gods, like Satan said, it made them like beasts. And it caused them to look upon themselves with shame in God's presence. 
Previously, see, they had walked with an innocent lack of consciousness of anything between them and the Lord. Everything was open. Nothing was being hidden from God. They were like innocent babies, like angels, you see, hiding nothing. Their newfound knowledge, it was bitter. And so now they looked upon themselves with shame. They were stripped of their glory. And they were left open in all their degrading infamy in the eyes of him with whom they now have to do. The eyes of a holy God. A God who cannot look upon sin apart from intense revulsion. Now as we read of their solution to this new dilemma of their nakedness, we're struck with its ridiculousness, with its folly. Having committed the sin themselves, they attempt to alleviate the problem themselves. And rather than driving them back to God, their guilt and shame, the first instinct you see, led them to resort to the only self-protecting measures that they could think of. Right away, they tried to cover themselves by sewing together fig leaves. And the fig leaves were, were the leaves that were the largest in, in the part of Palestine that this narrative takes place in. And so they seek to make aprons to cover uh, themselves before one another and before God. And in this way, they tried to cover themselves. Now, sin leads to guilt and shame, the loss of transparency with God. It ruins our relationship with the Lord. It replaces joyful, open-faced fellowship with desperate attempts to conceal ourselves from his searching gaze. Sin separates from God. And it's this separation that is the most dramatic aspect of the death that God promised would be theirs. They would be alienated now from the life of God. Death is separation. And the worst aspect of it is separation from God, the source of all life. Immediately the communion with God that they had once enjoyed, it's now removed. It's cut off. And their attempts to cover themselves with fig leaves, it also tells us that after they had sinned, in each of their hearts, conscience has now been awakened. They know that they didn't do the right thing. And they didn't need God to say anything to them about it. They knew it in their hearts. Conscience is that inner monitor that passes judgment upon us when we have sinned or when we have done right. Conscience only knows two things, guilty, not guilty. Tells us whether we did the right thing or whether we did the wrong thing. That's what conscience is. In Romans 2.15, Paul speaks of the conscience as either accusing or excusing men about what they have just done. In 1 John 3.20, John says that if our heart condemns us, how much more will God, who is greater than our heart, condemn us? And at the final judgment, when God announces the doom of each sinner, they will be speechless because their judgment will be their own hearts. Their conscience will testify that what God says about them in judgment is true. Their conscience will speak as loud as possible. Now, children, I want you to listen for me just for a moment. God has put a conscience in your heart. You know what that conscience is? It's something that he put in your heart that tells you whether you did the right thing or the wrong thing. It makes you feel bad if you did 
the wrong thing. This is what makes you feel bad, for instance, when you know you're, you disobeyed mommy or daddy. You feel bad about it then. And this is what makes you try to look like he didn't do what you just did. Like, you know, when you're told by mommy to pick up your room, pick up the toys in, on the floor. Or maybe told by mommy, pick up your clothes, they're all over there. And you say, yeah, mom, okay. And then you go on playing and you don't pick them up. You don't straighten it up. Uh, Johnny, did you pick up your room? Yeah, 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 I'm getting into it. And then finally you hear her coming to your, your room. And all of a sudden, after now 15 minutes, you got to quickly now pick up a couple things to make it look like you were really busy the whole time picking up your room. But you know in your heart you were disobeying God. You were disobeying God through his commandment to obey your parents by not doing right away what you were told to do. And it's your conscience, you see, that told you that that was wrong. Inside your heart, you know you disobey. Now, what we see here, it also speaks to us as adults. The conviction of our consciences and the immediate wish that we could undo what we just said or what we just did, this is what makes sin not worthwhile. We regret it afterwards. What we read of here in Genesis 3 is the beginning of all sorrows. Here we read of Adam and Eve. They lost their integrity. And their reward is beginning to be measured out to them according to what they just did. It was a day of terror and of gloom. Immediately dark shadows begin to come over their souls. Like the blackness of midnight. It's likely that there never were in the history of the human race souls that were so forlorn, so bewildered. Their bosoms must have heaved with unavailing sighs as they thought about the hopelessness of their situation. How could they ever undo what they just did? How could they meet God? How could they set things right? And so they try to do something about it. Just like the children just picking up really quick the toys to make it look like they were doing it. They try to take these fig leaves and to make coverings for themselves. And what a multitude of terrible reflections must have been on their minds. For violating that one precept, they had exchanged, you see, happy immortality with a sure sentence of death that had been given them. Previously, they had known and experienced the wonder and the happiness of meeting with God. Uh, that kind of encounter that we read about in the writings of A.W. Tozer. But now, you see, they have no God to look unto, but hide from. The God that they can see now, if he comes into their presence, is the very God that they've offended wickedly. And to whom now can they go? Where will they find refuge? And to whose ears can they pour out their grief? Here, no doubt, were the first tears shed that were ever shed on the face of the earth. They weep. But what hope is there that joy would ever follow that night of weeping? Now, perhaps they tried to pray. But who's there to hear their prayers? How can they have confidence that this God that they knew and delighted in would, would listen to them, 
What right do they have to be heard? As Gardner Spring expresses it most truly, it was a scene of desolation, anguish, and despair. It was the sting of sin, the bitterness, the hopelessness of those who had thus madly separated themselves from God. Apart from the Lord Jesus Christ, dear people, if you're a sinner apart from him, you don't have in yourself, in your situation, any reason for hope. If you're outside of Christ, there's no covering you see that will help you hide from him that you've offended. It's no use for you to try, try to make coverings with, with some good works you try to quickly do before he comes. There's no fig leaves you see that you could put on yourself, so to speak, to try to fix the situation. Apart from the Lord Jesus Christ, your situation is no better than that which is suggested under the first heading they, co- heading they cover up. And like Adam and Eve, you can try to, all you want, to try to cover your sins. But your miserable grief, your miserable leaf covering, is no covering in the presence of an omniscient God. They cover up. But in the second place, we now see what God does. In the second place, notice that we have a seeking God. God seeks. First part of verse 8, we read these words. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Now in the first seven verses of this chapter, Yahweh has remained in the background. We don't read of God in those first seven verses. And the focus of the first seven verses has been on the husband and the wife's relationship with a serpent and also with one another. But now the stage is set for the appearance again, once uh, the reappearance of God. And the great question at this point in the narrative is this. When God reappears, how will he manifest himself? How will he show himself to these ones who have just offended him? Will he appear as their judge and as their executioner? Will he immediately carry out the dreadful denunciation of the law? Will the flames of divine wrath break in upon them? Will Adam and the whole race of his descendants be monuments forever of strict justice? The day you eat, you will die, full stop. Will future history be written with nothing other than desolation and mourning and lamentation and woe? What will happen now? Or shall God manifest himself in some way that they had never understood or hitherto known or realized? Well, our first parents, they had no reason to expect that God would appear in any other way than as a judge. There was nothing that they could see that could offer any hope that they would escape the punishment that they deserved. And therefore, the suspense and the dread that gripped their hearts, it must have been awful. As they heard, as we read now in those words of this verse, they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Now, the Hebrew word that's translated the sound in the phrase, the sound of the Lord God, it literally means voice. And it gives us the idea of the Lord calling out to the creatures that he had made. We can't rule out that 
this is perhaps the right interpretation. But interpreters commonly understand the description as an instance of what we call anthropomorphism. That's an anthropomorphism is when there's something that is human-like that is made, God is said to be like that. And this is a description of God and of his actions in human terms. For instance, the Bible speaks of the arm of the Lord. It's not that God has a fleshly arm. It's not that he does curls every morning to make sure he's got big biceps. No, the arm of the Lord, you see, it's a, it's a picture of his power. If the arm of the Lord is against you, you better watch out. He was against, you see, the arm of the Lord was against his enemies. The Bible uses that kind of phra phraseology. And so this is what we have in this place. In the verse that we have here, the sound of the Lord, I believe it is most likely a, it's used in connection also with the Hebrew word that's translated walking in the translation and most of the ones, and, and basically all the ones that I have the most confidence in. And again, this is an anthropomorphism. It's speaking in human terms. God doesn't have literal legs. He doesn't go walk from one place to another. But God's presence is often spoken about in Scripture as walking about. For instance, in the midst of the blessings that were pronounced on Israel, if Israel would obey, there's a whole list of blessings if Israel obeys. In Leviticus chapter 26, and in verses 11 and 12, God says, I will set my tabernacle among you, and my soul shall not abhor you. I will walk among you and be your God, and you will be my people. That doesn't mean that there was some kind of physical form with legs that people saw walking around in the camp. It's a word picture, you see, that speaks about God being in the midst of his people. Now, the particular form of the Hebrew word that's used here, it suggests that which is repetitive, that which is habitual. And apparently, such walks, so to speak, or these times of special nearness when God would be with Adam and Eve and commune with them in a special way, apparently this took place regularly. And they did so, it seems, as it's put here, in the cool of the day, literally in the breeze or the wind of the day probably a reference to the evening when things cool down. Now here I want you to get the picture that this gives us. God is omnipresent. He is everywhere. We read of that in Psalm 30, 139 earlier in our service. And yet there is a special presence of God. He sets up a tabernacle, a place where he especially meets with his people. There was a Shekinah glory that was manifested in that special place. Jesus promised in Matthew 18 that with two or three are gathered together in his name, he will be with them. He's everywhere. He's omnipresent. But he is especially among those that pray in his name. And here in Genesis 3, it depicts this garden temple, which is what we have here, as the place where God especially would manifest his presence. And it seems that there were appointed times to meet with his presence his creatures and these appointed times included at least the cool of the day now perhaps von rad understands the words in our text correctly when he says they heard the sound of the lord god walking as a description of here as he puts it the rustle of god's step they could hear him coming so to speak although he is not physical in his nature 
It was as it were you see the sacred sound that when they would hear God's approach before, this would fill their hearts with joy. Oh, God has come to meet with us again. Oh, what the most blessed time of the day when we can commune with our God that made us, that we love and that we serve. This was a sound that they delighted to hear before. But now it brings dread. And as we read this passage, the great question that we are waiting to have answered is this. How will God come to his creatures after they've rebelled against him? How does he come to them? Now, perhaps after they sinned, they were thinking he might not come at all. He would just leave them forever. And at first, this might be a relief that they wouldn't have to have a God that comes in severe judgment. But then again, to stay away forever, this would have made them feel like destitute orphans. One of the saddest descriptions of unconverted people is that they're without God in the world, as Paul describes it. So he could have just left them like orphans and just deserted them. That would have been a terrible judgment in itself. Or he might come among them with righteous indignation. He might send this first pair right to their eternal doom, right to their eternal death, as had been threatened. He might come with angels of vengeance and bind them hand and foot forever. So Adam and Eve, they must have wondered, will he come? And if he comes... What will his coming involve? Will it, it, will it mean a total destruction? Their hearts, you, you see, they must have been terribly perplexed. They knew of his j- gracious generosity, but they also knew that this was a holy God. He had told them what would please him and what would displease him. And so they must have trembled in fear as they heard the rustle of his approach. Now we know this to be the case because of the way they tried to hide themselves from the Lord. But we mustn't get ahead of ourselves here. Now, I suppose that most of you played hide-and-seek as you were children. And, uh, of course, the best way to play that game is to know the kind of places the one is hiding that you're trying to find, or to know the person where he might look if you're the one that's hiding. So there's a little skill involved in playing hide-and-seek. But you notice that the title of our sermon is not Hide and Seek, but Seek and Hide. And you might have thought, well, that's strange. Is, did, was there a typo here? Maybe, maybe Pastor got it kind of wrong here. What's there is deliberate, because it, fo- it follows the order that's found in this passage. It's Seek and Hide. Before telling us of the hiding sinners, our text tells us of a seeking God. And this, dear people, in itself, this is an astounding manifestation of God's grace. Before Adam and Eve react to their desperate plight, God is already coming to them. And even so, before you ever had thoughts of God, before you ever fully began to manifest your aversion to God, God has come seeking after you, my friend. This is amazing grace. Our gracious God is a seeking God. This deserves our special attention. So before we move on, I want to point out three characteristics of his seeking. First of all, his seeking is patient. When God met with fallen man, 
He waited until the cool of the day. This is significant. This suggests God's great patience with the guilty. Now, whether Adam and Eve sinned early in the morning or heat of the day, we don't know. But it's not necessary we know exactly when it was that they sinned. But it's probable that God allowed at least some interval of time to pass between what they did and his coming to them. God wasn't in a hurry to come to them, though, because he couldn't come without manifesting his displeasure at what they had done. Just like you parents, you don't look forward to telling your children that they've done wrong and telling them what the consequences are. You don't look forward to that. And how different this is, you see, from the way in which you and I react, you see, how we behave when we get angry. You see, if they have provoked, you see, if, if, if they have provoked God, they might expect that immediately he would come and he would, he would blow up at them, they might think. And how different this is, you see, how, how we behave. If we get provoked, you see, immediately sharp, cutting words fly from our lips. Immediately it's a word and a blow that comes from us. God's not like that. He's able to endure far more than you and me. And here he seems to say to himself, I must go and I must call these two creatures to account for their sin. But judgment is my strange work. I can't go right away. Mercy is my delight. So for some time, he continued to pour out his sunlight. For some time, he allowed them to consider their ways. He continues to shower goodness upon them during those hours. And he puts off going to that, confront them in, until the cool of the day. Because God does nothing in the heat of passion like you and I do. And even when he must issue the reproof, Everything about his approach is deliberate and calm and majestic and divine. Dear ones, this should teach us to be patient with one another as well. We should be like God in this respect. Think of the great patience God has manifested to you. With some of you, for years he poured out his mercies upon you. And you, yet you scarcely, even to this day, give him a, a single thought. You've continued to resist his word. You've continued to resist his servants he sends to you to bring his word to you. And yet he hasn't dealt with you yet in judgment. He's waited 10 years, maybe 20 years, maybe 30 years, maybe even more in your case. Yet you haven't repented of your sins. You're still holding out. How patient God is with you. Don't abuse this patience. Because if you do, it will witness against you in the day of judgment. And you who are parents, let God's example teach you to be patient with your children. Often, they're not even aware that they have done something that offended you. They're not trained very well yet. Be careful about jumping to conclusions and just mouthing off right off the hat without knowing the whole, the whole story. And even when you're called out, you called out to them again and again without getting the appropriate response, pick up the toys or whatever the issue is, 
Take care about the tone of your voice. It impacts them. Don't be impatient with them. Don't get angry with them. God has been patient with you. And will you not be patient with those that are entrusted to your care? Husbands and wives, it's inevitable that there are going to be times when something your spouse does irritates you. And maybe it's one too many times that's happened. And you lose it. And you get angry. And the words fly. And likewise, in the church, we need to be patient with one another, loving to one another, as we read there in Colossians chapter 3. We need to be aware of the spirit of man in Jesus, the spirit of the man in Jesus' parable. You remember, he, he was the one that was forgiven much, but then he wouldn't forgive his servant that owed him something. He grabs him by the throat and he says, pay me what you owe. We need to be careful that we're not like that with one another in the church of Jesus Christ. His seeking is patient. Notice also his seeking is caring. Now the timing of God's visitation this also manifested thoughtfulness and care for his creatures. You see, he might have left them all night long, all night without their God, all night without being able to sleep, worried sick over what was about to happen to them the next day, haunted by a thousand fears. He could have left them that way. And you know how being in suspense is often worse than what happens when the dreaded event happens. Each day in waiting and suspense for the sentence of the judge is worse than the sentence itself. And because God cared so much for those that he had made in his image, he patiently waited for the cool of the day. But he didn't leave his creatures in terror for months and years before, tell them, before telling them of his decision. And furthermore, included in the confrontation that will take place would be a wonderful promise, a promise the seed of the woman that would crush the serpent's head. And God couldn't bear to wait another day to get that promise out to them, to encourage their, dis their discouraged hearts. He wanted to reprove them, but he also wanted to come to them with the promise of the gospel. And likewise, with you that are holding out against his offers of mercy, God is slow to anger. He's patiently waiting for the cool of the day. He's ready to pardon Judgment is his strange work. Mercy is his delight. And so because of his loving care for his creatures, it's as if he can't wait to surprise them with the promise that he has in store for them. His seeking is caring. His seeking is also, thirdly, seasonable. God came to Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. And at that hour, the day's work is done. The first pair is accustomed at that time to lay aside their, their work and to rest and to fellowship with God. And likewise, he comes to you and he comes to me at appropriate times in our life. Times when we have time to think about things. Maybe it, you're trying to fall asleep and he comes to you in the night as you're thinking about your life, about where you're headed. He causes you to come to hear a sermon, perhaps, that you didn't plan on hearing. You had no idea what the preacher was about to say. And the preacher wasn't checking out all your emails to figure out and so he could just zap you with something in his sermon. He isn't filming everything you're doing so that he knows your, your inner life. But God knows it all. He's read all those emails. 
And he appoints a preacher with a message to say something to you. And he, it comes in a seasonable way at that time when you need to hear that word. Or perhaps you've heard something preached long ago. Something that you've read in God's word long ago. And then a trial comes into your life. And God begins to bring that back to your mind at that point. He comes to you. He seeks you. And he does so in a seasonable manner. Dear ones, do you see how wonderful God's ways are? He's the seeking God. It is seeking. He's patient. He's caring. He's seasonable. He's the great shepherd that goes after his sheep. And he continues to go after his sheep, his poor lost sheep, until he puts it on his shoulders, brings it home, rejoices, and says to those in heaven, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep, which was lost. But we've seen how they cover up. We've seen how God seeks. And now I want you to notice with me more briefly, they hide. Our third main heading. And in the latter half of verse 8, we read that when they heard the approaching sound of the Lord, Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. You see, far from eagerly anticipating now another time of fellowship with God, this couple that had previously sought to cover their nakedness with fig leaves, they now attempt to hide themselves from God among the trees of the garden. And the narrator, he refrains from how it is that they tried to camouflage themselves in the midst of the shrubbery and whatever was there, how they tried to escape detection. He just leaves it up to us, you see, to ask ourselves how in the world trees or shrubs can conceal anybody from an omniscient God. He just expects us that we're going to think about how ridiculous that is. We opened our worship service by reading and singing from that psalm in which David, he reflects on the impossibility of escaping an omnipresent God. The extremities of heaven above or the depths of hell beneath can't conceal us. The uttermost parts of the sea, he's there. His guiding hand is there. Even darkness can't conceal us. None of us can hide from God. But this doesn't keep us from trying. We're like that child you see that in playing hide-and-go-seek, let's come back to that game again, he's hiding behind a skinny tree, but he's wider than that tree. But because he's got his head, you see, behind that tree, he can't see the person looking for him, he thinks he's hidden. He doesn't realize that parts of him are sticking out, can be seen plainly, he's going to be found right away. That's the way Adam and Eve were. In their folly, they try to hide behind a tree, a tree that can't hide, you see, from an omniscient God. And our attempts are like Adam's foolish idea that God can't see him behind a tree. And as we get older, we get better at playing hide-and-seek with each other. But we never get so good at playing hide-and-go-seek that God can't see us. He sees us wherever we are. The time is getting away from us, and I want to, some of the ways in which we try to hide from God, I want to come back to this in a future sermon. But it's important at this point that we understand what prompted Adam and Eve to try to hide from God. You see, children that have wronged their parents, they go into the room, they shut the door, 
and they don't want to see death because they just did the wrong thing. So they shut the door. And he comes and knocks on the door. Johnny, oh, what's going on here? And he, he just is quiet because he doesn't want to answer. He doesn't want to see death because he knows he did something wrong. He tries to hide, you see. And we do the same thing as adults. You've spoken evil of somebody. God forbids us to speak evil of one another. But instead of making things right, you avoid that person. You've wronged that person, but instead of making it right, you avoid that person, just like you avoid God. In the same way, Adam and Eve tried to hide from God because sin had alienated them from God. Previously, there was nothing that they rejoiced in more than God coming in the cool of the day that they might commune with him. But now it's a dreadful thing. The very thing that brought them supreme pleasure, it fills their heart with aversion and dread. They knew that they were unworthy to be God's sons. Instead, they deserved to be treated like criminals. And never were creatures more anxious to escape the presence of God than Adam and Eve were on that day. The consciousness of crime begets terror. Proverbs says the wicked flee when no one pursues. The bank robber or the murderer has always got to be looking over his shoulders, wondering when there's somebody checking him out. Somebody that happened to see a, a photo that was broadcast on TV, whatever. He's always he, he's fleeing when no one pursues. Or you live in fear that God's word is going to expose something that's in your heart. And the root issue is this. If you're trying to hide from God, you are alienated from God. But know this, no matter what you do, my friend, no matter how hard you try to hide from God, you can't hide from God. He sees you. He knows you inside and out. Well, we've seen that they cover up. We've seen that God seeks. We see then that they hide. This brings us down to our fourth heading, God finds. We read in verse 9, Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, where are you? And we might just pass by that question. But it's a very significant question. God addresses Adam in particular, or some translations read, he addresses the man. It's the same in the original. And God does this first because it was Adam that heard the prohibition directly from God, whereas the woman had not yet been created when that prohibition had been given to eat of the fruit not to eat of the tree. And secondly, God addressed Adam in particular because he's responsible as the head of the household. But it's even more important, perhaps, that we notice the question that God asks Adam here. He begins his whole interrogation with the most gentle kind of a question. Adam, where are you? Where are you? He comes searching for Adam. He knows full well that Adam's hiding behind that tree. But he lovingly wants to draw Adam out, you see. He doesn't want to drive Adam out. He doesn't say to Adam, you good-for-nothing rebel, get out from behind that tree. Don't you dare sneak it away from me again. I'll string you up if you try it again. That's not the way he dealt with it. That wasn't his approach. He's the good shepherd that seeks his strange sheep. The case calls for tenderness rather than toughness. So he cries out, Where are you, Adam? Where are you? 
I can't help supposing that there was a tone of pity in the way that God spoke to Adam. Now notice a few features of this question. I don't know if we'll get through these four. There are four things that are mentioned in your outline. But first of all, it was a remedial question. Like the Son of God, he, he, that God sent into the world. God did not come to Adam just to condemn him, but to save him. Just as Jesus did come into the world to condemn people, but to save them. And his is like you see a loving father's question to a naughty little boy hiding behind a door to avoid his father's face. Son, where are you? As if God is asking, oh, my son, why are you there? He comes to Adam with the same kind of loving heart that's on display in Jeremiah 31, 3. The Lord has appeared of old to me, saying, yes, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, he says, with loving kindness, I have drawn you. You see, God's great aim is not to harden Adam. It's not to bring him to despair. It's to lovingly lift him from the depths of his hopeless depression, to welcome the wanderer back to his heavenly home. He's the shepherd that sees his poor lamb caught in the thicket. And yes, it's a thicket the, the lamb shouldn't have been even near if the lamb had been obedient and stayed with the flock. He could have avoided it. But he comes and he rescues it, the shepherd does anyway. His loving question, where are you? This is his gentle way of extricating his straying lamb from the thorns and from the thistles that are entangled in its, in its fur. God is, as it were, the first preacher of the gospel. And before he tells them the promise of the gospel... He, as it were, lovingly is calling Adam out to repentance. Where are you, Adam? Why are you trying to hide from me? It was a remedial question. It was also, secondly, a personal question. God cries out to Adam personally. He says, where are you? Where are you? Now, one of the worst mistakes that people make when they listen to a sermon is they have the habit of lending this, the sermon to other people's ears rather than their own. We're supposed to lend our ears, you see, to what's being said, but we, we're good at lending other people's ears to what's being said. You say, well, I hope so-and-so is sitting over on your side there. I hope she got that point. Or it's a pity that, that, that Mrs. So-and-so wasn't here today because, boy, that, that really she needed to hear that one. My dear friend, I'm preaching this sermon to you. Not preaching it to somebody on the other side of the church. Not preaching this, you see, to, to somebody that's not even here. God is addressing you in particular. Put your name in the place of Adam here. He says to you, Adam, or, or Joe, or whatever your name is, where are you? What have you been doing? What is the state of your heart? Will you now repent of the folly of straying from me? Will you continue your sins? And if you're holding out against God, my friend, I hope that when you get away, perhaps, from everything else, and when you're alone tonight and you're trying to go to sleep, you'll hear again God's asking you the same question. You can't get it out of your mind. He says to you, where are you, John? 
Where are you, Alice? Where are you, whatever your name is? It was a personal question. Thirdly, it was a searching question. Where are you is rhetorical. It's not as though Yahweh didn't know this man's whereabouts. He knew exactly where Adam was. God, you see, was giving Adam the opportunity to come out from behind the trees and to admit his sin. And the question is similar to the question that God asked Cain. Where is Abel, your brother? God asked Cain. And God certainly knew where Abel was. God certainly knew where Adam was. He was merely providing an opportunity for Cain to acknowledge his sin and here for Adam to acknowledge his sin. He begins his interview with Adam with the same aim that can be seen in the rest of the interview. He speaks to Adam in this way to make him realize his poor, lost, helpless condition. Adam is lost. He's lost to God. He's lost to holiness. He's lost, you see, to eternal happiness. God say, Adam, I've lost you. At one time I could talk with you as a friend, but you're lost to me now. You're out now away from me. You once were my obedient child, but not now. I've lost you. Oh, Adam, he says, where are you? May the Holy Spirit convince every unconverted person in this room that he or she is lost. Lost to heaven. Lost to holiness. Lost to eternal happiness. Lost, as it were, to God. It's hard for me to think of anything worse than that word lost. Think about a ship that went down to sea the Coast Guard looks for days for a body or for somebody still clinging to a piece of raft or whatever. But at last, the verdict is pronounced. Lost at sea. We're going to look no more. What a terrible word that is. Lost. What a terrible thing it is to be lost. Lost spiritually. The Son of Man, though, Jesus says, came to seek and to save that which was lost. And so there's hope for you, my friend. And when he finds you and he draws you out from his ha- your hiding place, he begins by saying, Adam, where are you? And in this way, he finds you. He fetches you out from the thicket. He says, rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep, which was lost. And then finally, this was a solicitous question. It was a question that solicits an answer. And when Yahweh asked Adam this question, where are you? His question made Adam answer it. He forced Adam to have to answer. And in the same way, the Lord is asking you this personal question, where are you today? Where are you spiritually speaking? He's seeking to draw out of your heart, you see, a confession of your sin. He's not asking you to see, to, to, to just, just to confess everything to a pastor or to a priest. He wants you to come to him. He wants you to come and pour it out in prayer, 
confessing your sin, getting right with him. He's looking for you to accept full responsibility for what you did, for all you've done, and you've strayed from him your whole life. It's not, a, a, it's not good enough, you see, for Adam to say, well, well you see, Eve, Eve gave me this fruit. I ate of the fruit. Adam needs to confess, I did this wrong. I sinned. He needs to say to God, oh God, I disobeyed you. I've sinned against you. Please forgive me. That's what you need to ask God as well. Well, later on, we're going to study the wonderful gospel promise that God made to Adam and Eve. The forgiveness that he offered could only be given to those that place their trust in the sacrifice, the only sacrifice that can be made for sinners that will actually take away their sin. It is only in Christ, my friend, that you can find peace with God. So as you repent, it needs to be a, a repentance that's joined to trusting in Jesus. There's only one refuge for transgressors. It's not found in fig leaves. It's not found in excuses. It's not found in blaming other people. That refuge is Jesus. Christ alone is a hiding place from the wind and a covert from the tempest as the rivers of water in a dry place as the shadow of a great rock in a weary land. Well, I appreciate your patience with me this morning, but I want to still prolong just for a few moments as we sing together a hymn that I think is appropriate for what we have just heard. I want you to turn with me, please, to hymn number 411. It's a hymn that expresses the fact that now, because of Christ, we don't need to be despairing as we come to him. We don't need to shrink back. We can openly confess our sin as we read in stanza two. And we know that he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Stanza three. And it's only then that all peace is, then everything is peace and light. It's only then that there is, as the psalm ends, as the song ends, nothing between our soul and God. In number 411.